You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. And I invite you to turn to John chapter 8 as we continue in our study of John's gospel. We'll pick up where we left off last time. We're going to go ahead and read verse 12 again, and I'll read through verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered you, No, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your holy and sacred word. We recognize as we read that some of these things may be difficult. I think they are difficult. Well, Father, give us understanding of these things, that we seek to understand what it is that you desire for us to gain from this particular passage of Scripture. What is the design of the Holy Spirit in giving us this passage? Well, Father, uh, what was your design in recording this and providentially causing this event to take place? Father, we bow before you this morning, and we we want to uh, eat and drink of everything that is in this passage. So, Father, we pray that you would be pleased, O Lord, to feed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we spent all of our time in verse 12, and I would say a majority of our 
time in this phrase, I am the light of the world, which I uh, trust you'll agree with me that that wasn't, uh, uh, that was time well spent. Uh, a lot of times we will gloss past a passage like that, and especially a passage that's well known like that, without really trying to stop and trying to mind exactly what, well, what's this passage mean? What is the what is the essence of this passage? And, of course, I'm not going to repeat everything that we did last week, but I do want to do a review. And before I do a quick review, I just want to remind uh, myself and the rest of us of the twin goals that we had in doing this last week. Last week, I wanted to accomplish two things at the same time. Uh, first, I wanted to kind of take you through how we determine the meaning of phrases like this when we encounter them in Scripture. How, in other words, in short, how are we to study a passage like this? How are we to arrive at the meaning, and how can we know we have arrived at the meaning? And, of course, there's three things that are important when we're trying to understand Scripture, and those three things you know well, they're context, context, and context. And I, if I say that every Sunday, I'm not saying it too much. Um, context, context, context. So we start with the immediate context, and that would be John. And uh, sometimes it's it's really within a chapter or two. Sometimes it's further back. And in this case, we went back to John chapter one, where we see this, where John handles this and introduces this idea of light. And you'll recall early on when. We started studying this book, how I mentioned there's themes that surface and then they submerge. And, and that's, that's what John does. He causes, he, he throws out these themes, if you will, and uh, we see them, we get a glimpse of them, and it's, they submerge into the text, and then he brings them back out. Now, when we go back to John chapter 1, there we see uh, John takes us back into eternity. He is uh, showing us. Uh, creation in verse 3, all things were made through the Word, if you will, uh, through the second person of the glorious Trinity. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And in verse 4, we're told that it was in, it's in Him was life. And last week, we, we just reminded ourselves that He is the fountain of life. Uh, we have our life in Him. Uh, we live and move in Him, if you will. Uh, our loved ones, uh, their lives are in Him. And we're told that the life was the light of man. And to understand that, again, a second rule of interpretation is that the Bible is its own interpreter. The Bible interprets itself. And we can find commentary on these verses as we search the Word uh, for other places where these things are taken up in order to gain light from other places. The light might shine on places of amb ambiguity. And when we do that, uh, we find the Apostle Paul in Romans 2 gives us a lot of light on this verse when in verses 14 and 15 he says that the Gentiles, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, do the law. They show that they are a law to themselves in a sense. Their conscience is bearing witness uh, because the Lord has shown them the law, or in other words, He has written the law on their hearts. That gives us a lot of insight into this. And then furthermore, in chapter 1, we learn from verses 18 and following that uh, all men and women know that God exists because He has shown it to them. How has He shown it to 
Them, how has he shown it to us? By virtue of what has been made, so that we are without excuse. So here we see that God has created us in such a way that he has enlightened us or endowed us uh, with a conscience, if you will, uh, with a, uh, an ability to, to reason, if you will. And this helps us a lot in the prologue of John's gospel. If you look at John chapter 1, verse 9, now the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. How are we to understand that? I said last week, I think we're to understand this in the widest significance, in the widest sense that we can. Men and women have been made different than the rest of creation. Uh, our consciences can be seared. They can be uh, sullied. They can be dulled for sure, and they are. The effects of the fall on our conscious are, are, are drastic. But nevertheless, we still have an idea of what's right and wrong. Uh, we have this sense of what's right and wrong as a result of this enlightening, this enlightening uh, work, if you will, of God, of the true light which enlightens everyone. So in, in Him was life, that is, in the Word was life. Verse 14, and the rest of the gospel makes it clear that as in Christ, it is in Him, it is in Christ that we have our lives because it was through Him that all things were made. And... He is the light uh, of all men in this sense, if you will. Now, John's going to pick this up, and he's going to use this, and he's, gonna, he's at times going to narrow this sense to where at times the light will speak about what we call in theology regeneration, what we call the opening of the heart and the mind uh, to the, the, uh, the kingdom of God. We can think of uh, Nicodemus and John chapter 3 along these lines. He's going to do that. But in this particular passage here, he's speaking in a very wide sense. So when Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world, he is taking us back, if you will. He is taking us back uh, to creation. And that's the immediate context of the passage. And the greater context, I'm not going to turn to all these uh, verses, but we have Isaiah 42, 6, where there's the promise, if you will, of the servant, who the servant is the Messiah. This Messiah will come. He'll be a light to the Gentiles. We have Psalm 27, 1, which we read this morning, Psalm 36, 9, which you can look at at your leisure. And lastly, we looked at the historical context, and that's important to look at the historical context of a given passage of Scripture when we're trying to understand it. And the historical context is this is happening in the wake of the Feast of Booths. And we're looking at one of the rites, R-I-T-E, one of the rites of, that took place at the Feast of Booths. Namely, at nighttime, they would light up all those lamps. And those lamps were commemorative, if you will, of the Lord's leading the Israelite fathers in the wilderness by virtue of the pillar of fire by night. So it's at the hills, or in the midst of this, uh, this feast, if you will, uh, that Jesus stands up and makes this claim and says, I am the light of the world. Um, now, the rest of the chapter is largely a response to that statement. If we look at verse... Uh, if, you know, before we go... Let me tease this out. Let me just add something else to that. Now, rather than just being a review, let me, let me take it another step further. And for, you don't need to turn there, but in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, just take in this verse. 
John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. In other words, it's saying that God actually is light. He dwells in an unapproachable light and that he is light. Now, some of you who have been tracking along with our study in the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism may recall when we were studying the attributes of God, Catechism question four, uh, we were talking about all these attributes. You know, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and is uh, being, wisdom, holiness, power, justice, goodness, and truth, that whole line of things there. And we've spent a lot of weeks looking at each one of those, didn't we? And you'll recall that I injected this word simplicity in the midst of all of that. And it might at times sound like it's getting pretty complicated, but God's simplicity simply states this that God is not an assembly of parts. He's not one-fifth providence, another-fifth sovereignty, another-fifth and et cetera. He's not all of these parts put together, but that God's attributes actually, they're one. Now, as we think about the fact that God is light, we can say this about every attribute he has. God is light, therefore his holiness is light. God is light, therefore his sovereignty is light. God is pure, therefore his purity is light. And we can start to take in as we go down. God is wrath, and and his wrath is light. And as we take in all of these things, we can start to see how it is. And it shouldn't be no surprise to us that he dwells in unapproachable light. For these attributes are all, his truth is light, if you will. And furthermore, we can see why Jesus can make so good on the promise that anyone that follows me can hardly be in darkness. And, you know, again, let me read this verse. First John, you don't need to turn there, just listen. First John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. At nighttime, you know, I have one of those phones you just... Do one of these and the flashlight comes on. It's really handy. You can't see. You just do this, and now you've got this little light you can follow. How much more do we have? Uh, uh, light of Christ, whoever follows, whoever follows him. You can't be in the dark if you're following Jesus. It's a promise he'll make good on every time. How do they respond to this? That, that begins in verse 13. There the Pharisees say to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What what kind of thing is that? What, what, What are they saying? Well, first of all, they're throwing the law at Jesus. They're making reference to Old Testament law. Their charge against someone cannot be brought unless it's corroborated with two or three witnesses. Certainly not a capital charge, a capital offense. Uh... Some, some would say they're charging him of bragging at this point, of boasting at this point. It's an idle boast. Uh, you're just boasting about yourself. Uh, that, that may well be. What we can say for sure is that they're attempting to publicly uh, disgrace Jesus. Uh, they're attempting to uh, publicly defame him. Uh, they're, they're attempting to defraud him, if you will. Uh, it's the same thing that was going on in 753 to 811 with the um, adulterous woman being brought in. 
It's the same attempt. Uh, you're bearing witness about yourself. Some believe that, um, that they fully understand at this point that Jesus is making a claim to be God, uh, and that very well could be the case. They're not picking up rocks just yet, but wait until the chapter is over. We'll get to that. Um, and uh, let me just say while I'm talking about that, we're not going to make it all the way through the chapter. So uh, this morning, we're going to plow through some difficulties, uh, working our way to the end of the chapter. So our homiletical points, if you will, and applications are only going to be kind of in their infancy this morning. They're not going to really fully come to the surface as they would, um, that you would come to expect on any other morning. But that having been said, they throw the law at Jesus. And then Jesus responds to them in verse 14. Jesus answers, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Now, here's one of those difficulties that I just spoke about. One of the reasons why I'm not taking the whole chapter, this whole chapter uh, needs to be taken together because the themes, many of the themes that we're talking about now are going to be developed further before this chapter is over. Uh, and this is really kind of part one of maybe a part two. If we get through it, it may be part either one of two or one of three. But... The reader of John's gospel will have a flag fly up when they read verse 14. Because here Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Why the flag? Well, because of what we read all the way back in chapter 5, verse 31. And there I would ask you to turn back, if you would, chapter 5, verse 31. And there we read these words where Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Say what? Um, is it, I mean, here's the, here's, here's the interpretive difficulty. In one place on the surface it seems to be saying it's not true, and in the other place it seems to be saying it is. Is Jesus contradicting himself? That has to be removed from the table. Uh, he's, in, he's incapable of such a thing. Now, the problem is not with Jesus. Let's not go blaming Jesus for this. He's not the weakest link in this chain. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> the problem is with our understanding. And there's a, once we begin to look at three things that are very, very important, context, context, and context, the problem vanishes right away. And if you recall, persecution is mounting. If you look at verse 18 of chapter, in chapter 5, verse 18, I pointed to this verse many times where we read these words. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I spent a lot of time on that. Was Jesus breaking the Sabbath? No. We had to look at the, it was in their estimation he was breaking the Sabbath. Uh, it's according to them he's breaking the Sabbath. Uh, and he, is he making himself is he calling himself equal with God? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And Jesus begins to answer in verse 19 to this. And he says here that, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Here he's pointing to his unity. We're going to get that again in John 8. He's pointing to his unity with the Father. If you look at verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You remember spending all that time on that? And then 
in this context, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What is Jesus saying there? Here's what he's saying there in the words of William Kistemont, or uh, William Hendrickson, which is very helpful. He said, what Jesus is saying there is, my testimony is not true in your estimation if I just bear testimony myself. There's a, a word here that's used, if some of you will have it, if you have an older edition of the ESV, you'll have the word deemed. This is really helpful. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Now, that word disappears from later editions. Uh, there's, I don't know how many editions, maybe four or different editions of the ESV now currently. Uh, that shouldn't spook us. Uh, why? Well, the word deemed, there is no Greek equivalent to that word in the Greek text there. Eletheis is the word, and it simply means... Uh, it's true, and there's a, a negative in front of it, which would mean not true. That's what's in the original. Uh, so there's an interpretive license that is taken here by adding deemed. And I, I can only guess that the scholars probably caught that. And if you read the preface, if you will, or the introduction to the ESV, they, uh, their, their goals are to come to an essentially literal translation. It's an essentially a literal. People talk about translations. I don't want to get sidetracked into all that because that's a long discussion. But a lot of times people want a word-for-word translation. If you had a word-for-word translation of the Greek text, you'd have one strange, hard-to-understand text. Uh, you would sound a lot like that fellow on, uh, on uh, Star Wars. Uh, what is that? Uh, C3, pardon Yoda, that's it. Yeah, you would you'd be getting your direct objects and listen, it'd be a mess. It'd be comical at the start, but it'd be a mess. Uh, I think that's probably why they removed deemed, but deemed actually helps us understand it. Is it wrong? No, it's not wrong. Is it in the text? No. I think they were right to take it out if their goal is to have an essentially uh, uh, literal translation. That's why it's gone. It's nothing to worry about. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if, if I bear witness to myself, in your estimation, it's not true. That's what he's saying there. But if we go back to John chapter 8 and verse 14, Jesus is saying, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. And he tells us why. He tells us why and what follows. He says, because I know where I came from. Now, what's that pointing to? That's taking us back to John chapter 1 again. For where did Jesus come from? Well, he come from eternity, where he was with God, where he is God. So is it possible for Jesus to give a false testimony? And the answer is no. So, so Jesus said, so even if I bear witness to myself, my witness is true because I know where I came from. And furthermore, he, he adds, and I know where I'm going. Only God could know this. 
Do, does any of us know where we're going to be six months from now? Do we know exactly what we're going to be doing six months from now? Do we know that there may be a monumental event in our lives six months from now? Jesus does. And what is that event? That event is the cross. He knows where he's going. That's going to become important here in a few minutes. Then he says to them, he, he, he reprimands them. He says, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. What are they doing? Well, to judge according to the flesh is to judge by worldly standards or, again, the Bible interprets itself. If you look at John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances. Why does he say that? Because they're judging by appearances. He's not saying that because nobody's doing it. He's saying that because that's exactly what they're doing. That's worldly judgment. That's judging according to the flesh, judging by worldly standards and the principles of this world. And that's what he's telling them they're doing. In their estimation, he's a countryman from Galilee. And that's their estimation, although I think they know better. They have to know something's beyond that is going on. They have to know. But they're blinded by pride, unbelief, and prejudice. And there the homiletical point is starting to surface a little bit. We'll get into more of that as we go next week, Lord willing. But notice that Jesus gives us another curveball at the end of verse 15. He says, I judge no one. Some people have read that verse and they're saying, Jesus doesn't judge anyone. I met a woman, she was years ago, she was very emphatic. She told me that Jesus, my Savior, judges no one. She's probably making reference to that verse. Is that what that verse means? Well, someone said, well, that's what it says. Okay, he doesn't judge anyone. Um, if that's the case, then what do we do if we turn back to John chapter 5 and we look at verse 30? Jesus there says, as I hear, I what? I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if you look back to verse, I don't know, verse 27, Father has given me authority to execute judgment because he is a son... Um, um, uh, he, has given, uh, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Um, if you look back to, um, well, you get the gist of it. Um, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me as eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Uh, you get the gist of it. So does he judge or doesn't he judge? What is the verdict? Well, again, there's... There's a literary device taking place here, and this is another rule of interpretation. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm doing both at the same time, because this chapter gives us so many lessons in that. And what's going on here is what we call an ellipsis. And if you read uh, commentaries, uh, you'll encounter that word. And what is an ellipsis? An ellipsis is a sentence that's missing some things. It's a sentence that's missing some things. Try this one out. Look at verse 15. Well, we'll look at the context of verse 15. Okay, you do not know, verse 14, you don't know where I come from or where I'm going because you would judge according to the flesh. I judge no one according to the flesh. Aha. Bingo. So what can we say about Jesus? He judges no one. He's going to return in judgment. He is the judge. Capital J. He has to make judgments all the time. 
we are going to give an account. We're going to bow our knees to him. One thing we can, one thing we can rest assured on is he will judge no one according to the flesh. He will judge no one according to appearances. He's the one who judges what? The heart. He judges. You see how that just disappears? It's an ellipsis. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one according to the flesh. Even if I do judge, verse 16, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. This is the third argument that he's giving here, and it's an argument of unity. My testimony is true when I say I'm the light of the world because I'm in union with the Father who is truth. We're in union. He says, in your law, verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Notice how he says your law. What law are they quoting? They're quoting the law of the Old Testament there. They're quoting the Torah. They're quoting the, the law as it's found in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Yet Jesus says it's your law. It's because they're lobbing it at him. It's because they're throwing the law at him in, a, in an effort to discredit him. Your law, that little law you got going on there, that little law that you got going on, okay. It's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself. All right, the Father who sent me bears witness about me also. You want another witness? I'll give you another witness. How about the Father? There's a witness. You throw the lot in. This is absolute certainty. It's absolute certainty. What do you say to that? Well, they say in verse 19, where's your father? And Jesus answered, you, you don't know my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father, but you don't know me. And therefore, you don't know my Father. And there's a principle I'm going to leave because it's going to get developed further. But for now, we just know there's a spiritual principle that we cannot come to the Father to know the Father unless we come through the proper door. And Jesus is the door. You're not going to sneak in over the gate. You're not going to slip in some other way. You have to come in. You have to come in by the way that Jesus is open. He has provided a righteousness that we must have if we're going to get in. We're not going to get in any other way. You will never know me. You will never know the Father unless you know me. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasuries he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We'll save that. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I'm going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. There's a judgment. He's telling them, you're going to die in your sin. I can't think of too much. It would be more horrifying than to hear Jesus say to me, you're going to die in your sin. That's what he says to them. I'm going away. You'll seek me, and you'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 22, the Jews said, well, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? We, we, we were in this in John 7, remember? Where Jesus says, I'm going to go away, and they couldn't figure out where's he going to go. Is he going to go out to the diaspora? Where's he going to go? Where I'm going, you cannot come. What are you, is he going to kill himself? What's he talking about? Verse 22. Verse 23, he said to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. Hold on to that distinction. We'll, we're going to see that more as the chapter develops. 
Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, well, who are you? Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you, and look, much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. One last thing I'll develop and we'll call close. And this is verse 28. Jesus says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, what is he making reference to there? He's making reference to the cross, right? Many of you just saw, saw, read your lips. You just said cross. That's right. He was going to be lifted up to the cross, and it's through the portal of the cross that he will go to glory, isn't it? And when, but he's telling us here that when he has been lifted up to the cross, then they're going to know. In other words, there's a certain knowledge that's going to come from the cross. Make sense? Well, how is it that they're going to know? How is it that they're going to know this? Well, when Jesus is lifted up to the cross, while he's on the cross, the sun's going to go dark, isn't it? For approximately three hours. How do you explain that? The earth is going to shake. Something that they're definitely going to be aware of is that the veil in the, in the temple is going to be sheared into two pieces. You know, the veil between the holy place and the most holy place is going to be torn. How? This has never happened. This is actually quite bad. I always wondered how they fixed that. You ever wonder how they fixed that? You can't just go in there messing around. Nadab and Abihu is a very good example. Don't be in there messing around. Um, how'd they fix that? But then on the third day, the tomb's empty, unexplained. And then people start saying, we've seen the Lord. We've seen him. And the apostles come out of hiding, if you will, and they become bold. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon the believers at Pentecost, and people start speaking the language. Right now, I am struggling trying to communicate in Spanish. I can tell you, you know, at 53 years of age, it's not an easy thing to do to try to learn a second language. Uh, I'm really struggling. Could you imagine being able suddenly to speak in a lone language just right now and be able to communicate like you're a native speaker? That's what happens. How do you explain that? And then they become emboldened, and now you've got 3,000 people added to the number, and pretty soon you've got 5,000 people. Are they going to know? Yeah, they're going to know. The point that I want to leave us with this morning is that the cross doesn't just point to the atonement. A lot of times, and myself included, when we're going to the cross, we're talking about the atonement, where Jesus atones for our sins, and that's right. That's not wrong. That's 100% right. But I want to I add that there's another aspect of the cross that we don't talk about as much, but it's the aspect that we can know who Jesus is by the cross. Because when the Son of Man is lifted up, he's not only going to draw all men to himself, which is one of my favorite passages, but by virtue of the cross, we can know. We can know, can't we? Heavenly Father, 
We so thank you, Father, for your word. As we are we working through all of these difficulties to arrive at this, this text, which, Father, if it took us a, a month of Lord's days to work through this, Father, it, it's worth everything. If it took us all year to get through this text, oh, Father, the destination is worth every effort. It's worth every droplet of sweat. Oh, Father, help us to work hard. Help us, oh, Father, to work through this passage to gain to gain a certain mastery. We'll never master your word, but a certain mastery of this text, oh, Lord, that we can be brought into a fuller sense of devotion, a fuller sense of worship and adoration of who you are. You are the light of the world. And, oh, Father, we see through this, we see... We, through this, we see so many things that will become clear as we go further and further. But, Father, we see that the cross, the cross not only shows us that our sins can be paid, that our sin debt can be paid, but it also teaches us so much about you. And, oh, Lord, we so thank you for that. We thank you that that is the case. And, oh, Father, now as we come to the table, Father, we pray that you will press these things upon our hearts, oh, Father. Through the instrumentality, O oh Lord, of the signs of the, of the cup and the sign of the bread, O oh Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.